takeaways for me was that the master key to growing and healing is loving and accepting yourself as you are versus fighting with parts of yourself this helps to free up the blocked energy for focus on constructive growth we need to learn how to relax our minds strengthen our hearts and connect with our energy source these are our multi-dimensional capabilities to maximize our full potential My guest today is Omar El Harris. He's the founder and managing partner at The Intent Consulting. He's a motivational speaker, high-performance leadership coach, and author of The Servant Leader's Manifesto and Leaderboard: The DNA of High-Performance Teams. He's had a professional career in the pharmaceutical industry for over 20 years, working for companies such as Pfizer, Shering Plow, Merck, GSK in Aragon working in the US, Southeast Asia, Middle East and Latin America. His why is to empower and inspire the current and next generation of leaders to make a greater impact not only commercially but in developing people, enhancing the community and sustaining the environment. Well, welcome Omar. Uh, very excited to have you on the vlog today. Thank you, Adela. How are you doing? Good. Good. So um so Omar um knowing a little bit about you I'm uh, very impressed by sort of your early life and the early influences that actually led you to make the life choices that you did um right. would love to have my listeners um sort of understand what your background is and what those early influences were for you Oh well, I think you know my my earliest influences were the fact that my due to my father's job my father was a chemical engineer yes. we moved around a lot mm. um so I was born in Pittsburgh Pennsylvania mm -hmm. um we moved to uh West Virginia Charleston West Virginia and then Lake Charles Louisiana okay. during my you know from my from birth to like high school mm -hmm. and um we moved a lot within Charleston West Virginia we moved five times so I went to four different elementary schools as an wow. example so I think that 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 formative experience really and I went to two different middle schools and one high school so I, you know really having to forge relationships kind of out of nothing out of thin air mm -hmm. being adaptable being flexible um being mature so I think you gain a certain level of maturity when you when you get uprooted and put in different situations um, right. as a young person so I think that 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 was a formative experience as well and and I my my parents put a lot into me my mother put a lot uh a lot into me in terms of you know reading and uh emphasis on 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 books they they figured out kind of what I was good at early on from a creative standpoint and and really um invested in that aspect uh of my education so mm -hmm. I was able to really explore you know the creative writing side uh you know allowed to read as much as I wanted to read and and I think that that really uh really kind of helped me build this foundation that I took into you know university and then later on you know into the corporate uh, corporate world right you've written a very touching article regarding the lessons that you've learned from your mom uh could you talk a little bit about the uh, life that she had and and the principles and the ideals that she'd instilled in you and your your siblings well definitely my mother you know she passed on uh, April 17th of this year so it's it's still I'm very easy that Yeah. yeah, very recent, but um my mother lived an amazing life and she was 
a very inspirational person in and of herself. Mm -hmm. this, is a, this is a woman who was, was raised kind of, uh, never knew who her father was. And then she learned later on in life that, that actually she, her father had raped her mother and that she was a product of rape. Mm -hmm. um, and then she, her younger brother burned up in front of her when she was, when he was three years old. And so she watched her younger brother die, burned to death in the kitchen. And she dealt with, you know, uh, sexual abuse from relatives at a young age and mm -hmm. had a, her first child when she was 14 years old. Yeah. Another child by the time she was 21, mm -hmm. didn't get her education from, from, you know, didn't, didn't graduate from high school. And so most people who have this kind of story, their life is going to be, you know, not uh, a brilliant life, right? I mean, this is a story, a setup of a beginning of a story that is, you know, right. you're set up for, for a lot of hardship and misery through your life. But mm -hmm. my mom always wanted more for herself and she was determined to find it. So when she married my father, she started going back to school. She got her GED first and she got her bachelor's degree. And then she actually got her master's degree before I got my master's degree. So she just went to I school. I was so impressed to read that. Uh, I was yeah. very impressed by her journey. She went to school for 20 years just trying to because she really valued education so much and she got her, her, her master's degree in early childhood education and um and because she her whole thing was she was a social worker when i was growing up she was always serving the community and i think that's kind of where i get that that aspect of myself from is always looking at people who are less fortunate and how you can uh, improve their lives. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then, you know, she, she, she was really focused on children because she's listening to you know, the formative years of a child. This is where you can put all the stuff in them that makes them a great kind of human being. And so mm -hmm. she was really focused on that um, as, as her passion and her why uh, in, in her, in her uh, later stages of years. So I think that, you know, when I think about my mother, I think about someone who, first of all, overcame significant odds. Yeah and also who, who, who created the life that she wanted, mm. uh, despite the overwhelming odds she had at the beginning of her life. So I think that the message from my mom is that it doesn't matter how your story begins, it matters how your story ends. And it's about the journey, and it's about you know, how, how much you're willing to actually work for and mm. fight for your dreams. And um, I think that that is definitely within all of us, me and my other siblings, in terms of that steel, my mom's a very strong uh, personality, very strong person, mm -hmm. the will and the resilience to, to continue to fight at all times and to build the life that you dream of for yourself. I'm, I'm a big proponent of the positive psychology and mm -hmm. strengths movement. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you study strengths, and if you don't know about this, this is basically uh, something that was, that was uh, created by Donald O. Clifton uh, who was the former CEO of Gallup um, back in the 60s when he was trying to, when everyone else was trying to figure out, you know, uh, what was wrong with people, he decided to flip the script and begin interviewing leaders and executives and successful people trying to figure out what made them, yeah. what made them uh, effective and made them special and different. So, so I think that one of the things about my, my rearing was that my, my mother especially was trying to figure out what I was good at from an early age and then doubling down on those types of things. You know, right. I was, it's really funny because, you know, I was, I was a leader from, from the jump. Uh, I remember, I can recall being five years old and in the summertime, all the boys from the neighborhood coming to my door to figure out what the plan was for the day. 
right? This is like a five-year-old trying to direct people's traffic. Like I, <laughs> I, I started my first business when I was uh, seven. Um, and I organized Early entrepreneurship. Yeah, so I was, you know, really, really just from the jump was, was a little bit different, a little bit disruptive. My brain worked a little bit differently. My mom encouraged that, that thought process. She encouraged me to think differently, to question, to be curious, um, to read a lot. And I think that, that that really has, you know, kind of built that foundation in me. But when I later discovered, you know, the Clifton Strengths Finder and took my assessment and learned what made me unique, it wasn't that shocking to me mm -hmm. uh, because I had already connected with that and my mother had already highlighted that about me kind of like my entire life. So I was always thrust in these weird leadership positions. You know, I remember in 1998, 1988, when um, uh, George H.W. Bush was running for president uh, and Jesse Jackson had ran for president for the first time in the United States, I participated in a mock election as a fifth grader and I won. So Jesse Jackson beat George H.W. Bush in the election in Charleston, West Virginia for president of the United States, uh, if you can believe that. So, so you know, but I wouldn't, these kind of moments are, are very funny to me, but it's just highlights that whatever you have is in you from the beginning. Right. And your strengths are not something that uh, you have to discover them, but once you do, you can really invest in them, get your, you know, Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours in, and then you can begin applying them in your daily life to help construct the, the life that you want for yourself. Any advice for sort of youngsters, so early teens or, you know, preteens on, on, and their parents about how they should be approaching um, building yeah. strength from early? Yeah, what I would say is, I mean, you don't, need, you don't need an assessment from Gal to tell you what you're good at. What you need is, it's, you need to be paying attention and be present mm. in the moment you feel when you're doing an activity and it feels natural, yeah. one, and it feels good, mm -hmm. two. So those are the things you need to start, you know, if, you know, writing down, you know, when I do this, I feel it feels easy to me. Yeah. And it may not be so easy to everyone else around me. And I really enjoy doing it. That's the beginning of you discovering your special niche mm -hmm. as an individual. And I think that we're trained in Western education to be well-rounded, but that's a fallacy. Mm. I think that uh, trying to be well-rounded is trying to be, you know, an inch, you know, an inch deep and a mile wide, and you're never going to be exceptional at anything. And if you look at, you know, the prodigies we've seen and, you know, athletes or intellectuals, they become, you know, math or piano or, you know, they, they pick a discipline very early and spend all their time becoming great in that space. They're not worried about, you know, the world's best, you know, concerto pianist is not worrying about trying to become the world's best trumpet player. She is focused on the piano. That's where she feels she has the power to, to really make a difference. And so I think that everybody, as we go through life, especially early in life, and if you're a parent, you can begin to pick these things up, like watch your kids, like watch them very intentionally mm -hmm. and watch them and see what they pick up easily and see what they struggle with. Right. Uh, and focus on what they pick up on easily mm. and focus on what they enjoy doing naturally. What puts a smile on their face? Like watch your kids when they're smiling, figure out what that thing is. What is it that's really turning them on like that? Because right. that's the beginning of identifying what you're really, your sweet spot is, what you're really good at. And also encouraging your children or encouraging yourself. It's okay to be what I call spiky. It's okay 
to be really good in a few areas and not so good in every other area because later on in life, you're gonna find other people, you're gonna find a team and those people hopefully will be strong where you're weak and light and vice versa. That's the power of a team actually, is that mm-hmm. you don't have to be, no one person has to be great at everything. Mm-hmm. If, if that was the case, then we wouldn't have teams, we would have great people who did all the work and they could do everything, but that's never been the case in the history of human society. We've always required groups of people with different abilities and strengths coming together to build whatever it is they're trying to build. Right, right. Um, you told me a really interesting story about your early career where you had a leader who took you under their wing and sort of, you know, um, uh, capitalized on the strengths rather than, you know, pointing out, um, you know, the, the areas of development. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and how that led you to be a leader yourself uh, later on in life? Oh, oh definitely. I, I had two kind of formative experiences in the beginning of my career. So I was, when I first started my career with sharing plow, I was uh, set out to be a, I was part of the, the management, uh, the, the, the uh, high, high performance management program in the organization. Mm-hmm. So the program that was gonna basically, you go through three rotations in your early two, first two years in the company and you're on a management fast track, basically from that standpoint. So I came in on that fast track. Mm-hmm. I was sent to Philadelphia uh, to be a hospital sales rep and I had no district manager, so I had no leader in that territory. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of on my own for 12 months trying to figure out hospital sales in the acute coronary syndrome setting. Um, and it was, it was very challenging, but I, I figured my way through that, that experience. And I, then I came into the home office mm-hmm. for a market research uh, rotation. And that's when I, I really encountered my first, I wouldn't call her a toxic leader, but I'll call her a challenging, you know, a, a traditional uh, top-down leader. Mm-hmm. So the kind of person who's like, listen, everybody has to pay their dues in order to move up the ranks. And so basically I paid my dues, you have to pay your dues and the dues are these. Rather than trying to look at the person and say, listen, what is this person good at? Where are they talented? How can I best use this individual? It's more like, this is a structured development program that everybody's gonna go through regardless of who they are, where they come from, what they're good at or, or what they're not good at. So, you know, I was being, you know, paid very well. Uh, uh, and I came in and I was actually, my job was to, um, to proofread stacks of PowerPoint presentations for medical legal review. So pharmaceutical not the most exciting job, huh, Mark? Not the most exciting job, and I'm getting paid, you know, six figures to do this, uh, this job, um, and and also to send thank you letters to doctors after medical education programs. That was my whole day, and I did this for for three months, and I was losing my mind, and I wasn't good at it because I didn't I didn't really care. And when it came time for my third rotation, this particular individual told the future of hiring manager that I was worthless basically and that that I should not be continuing continuing in the company. Wow. Basically stated that, you know, he can't if he can't if he can't proofread PowerPoint presentations, he can't be a product manager. <clears throat> Luckily that manager was like, I will make my own opinion about this individual. I have another I have another series of references about his abilities and I'm gonna take that on 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 board versus what you're saying about you know, PowerPoint presentations and, <laughs> and, and luckily he did that and gave me a chance and, and he was very clear about his expectations right up front. But right from the beginning, he empowered me. He gave me a wide field to kind of run in. And when I was doing things well, he would highlight those things and say, listen, you know, let's do more of this. 
you know, I want to see you doing more of that. So he, he was always highlighting areas where you saw me being brilliant. Yeah. Um, and making me feel good about that and reinforcing those, those areas. Now, he, of course, gave coaching feedback about areas where, you know, I needed to mitigate and to, you know, derail, potential derailers, and we all have them. And the point of strengths philosophy is not to, not to ignore your weaknesses. It's just how do you develop your weaknesses? Well, you develop them by feedback, by paying attention, and by, by being mindful of them. Mm-hmm. Most of them are personality things. You know, mm-hmm. most, of your, most of your derailers are personality ticks, right. I right. call them. Yeah. They're not actually things that are work-related. They're more about like how you go about doing things or how you communicate or not communicate or how you interact with other people or your level of emotional intelligence. These are the derailers that we look at. But, you know, you can invest all your time in derailers and you're not going to become brilliant at any, at anything. And right. so they invested, they took, sent me to courses in areas where I was, where I was already strong, uh, strategic thinking, you know, I went to a, I went to a Socratic method thinking class and it was brilliant. It was, I, got, I got so much out of that and, you know, learned speaking with diplomacy intact. I got a lot out of that. So I was developing in areas where I was already, you know, had some proclivity and, and my development took off. Really, I mean, I, I went from associate product manager to senior director of marketing in five years. I was very young. I was the youngest director of marketing in my entire company. I was the youngest senior director of marketing in my entire company when I achieved that level. I was 31, and the closest person in age to me was 42. Yeah. And it was really because uh, of this investment in what I was good at and really putting me in my strength zone and allowing me to be brilliant at, right. at what I already did as opposed to spending years trying to beat out the things that were bad about me, which is what happens in corporations. Your first five years is just like, okay, fall in line and become this kind of person, you know, get within the machine and then we'll groom you for future greatness. But my first five years was let's throw this guy to the deep end. Let's see what he can really, let's see what he can't do right. from a performance standpoint. Yeah. Uh, and we, we, we love the way he gets things done. So we're going to, you know, we're going to enhance that and we're going to uh, encourage that. Right. Right. Now, um, you traveled to different parts of the world. You've lived in uh, the Middle East. You've lived in Southeast Asia, uh, in the U.S. Um, talk a little bit about the cultural nuances that you saw um, that impact a leader as they are, they are going through these regional changes. So I think the, the biggest one was probably going to the Middle East. I, I, <clears throat> I spent four and a half years in the U.S., at that point, um, and I moved to Turkey, and I was responsible for uh, for 30 countries in the what they call the MENA CIS region, which is Middle East, North Africa, and the Commonwealth of Independent States, which is the you know Ukraine and the stands uh, markets. And when you're managing 30 countries, you learn very quickly. You you can have two approaches. You can either be really top down and to say trying to dictate to these countries in a Western format. Listen, this is what you're going to have to do. This is what I expect of you. Or you can say, well, I don't know anything about these markets or these people or these cultures. Let me invest more time in trying to understand them, their unique challenges, mm-hmm. uh, because the products may be the same. The markets definitely are not. There may be some similarities in the markets. Right. But the people definitely are different. And the way they interpret uh, you know, uh, uh, instructions, the way they interpret guidance, uh, the way they deal with hierarchy, um, the, what motivates them, what inspires them, what gets them excited, uh, uh, what derails them. 
it's all very different. So I invested a lot of time in trying to figure out the nuances of the various different stakeholders I had. So I had stakeholders in Pakistan and Algeria and, and Emirates and, and Ukraine, Nigeria, South Africa, um, you know, uh, 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 you're all over, you know, all over the place. And so you, you know, for me, I, what was cool about the job was on any given day, I have to code switch all day. Right. So depending on who I'm talking to, the Turkish people, like depending on who I'm talking to, I'm code switching all day. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to be the one who's adapting to the culture of the person that I'm talking to the most in order to connect and to influence. Because, you know, when you don't have direct reports, which I didn't have, I had two direct reports in that job and I'm managing product managers, probably a, a, a cadre of 50 product managers around these countries. You know, my job is influence, not, you know, you know, some people took the job as just their top down, do it, give me this report by Friday. No, I'm like, I was trying to influence different behaviors, different approaches and strategies to how we achieve success uh, in the region. So I, I, I really was able to flex that adaptability muscle um, in that job. And, and, you know, I learned a lot about all the different cultures. And I think that the people appreciated my approach because I was not coming in dictating. I was coming in trying to understand and build relationships the way they built relationships. And uh, even speaking the language a little bit, trying to pick up words and phrases to, you know, you know, just to try to, you know, minimize the distance between myself and that other colleague so we could, we could drive performance together. Right, right. Now, um, you've written the Servant Leaders Manifesto, and it talks about toxic leadership, right? Um, and uh, could you talk a little bit about what is toxic leadership to you and and then talk a little bit about the book and, and what's the key, what are some of the key takeaways from the book? Right. So toxic leadership is an outshoot of hierarchical leadership. So if you think about business today, mm -hmm. uh, business today is defined by the traditional pyramid, which is, you know, you have CEO, board at the top, and then you basically go wider and wider and wider until you get down to the, to the people who actually, you know, whatever, create the product or, or sell the product to the end consumer. Mm -hmm. So, so the, now, Toxic leadership begins when these people at these higher levels of organizations are doing it for self-driven, ego-driven concerns. So the moment that it becomes all about me mm -hmm. as a leader, I'm beginning to become toxic to my environment. Mm -hmm. Because basically, the further away from the customer we get, the more toxic our culture is. So for example, if my team is working for me and only trying to please Omar all day long and the customer is saying, we need this, we need this, we need this, but everyone's looking at me and not looking at the customer, then that's going to create a toxic culture whereby the customer doesn't get what they need. And that is the definition of one definition of toxic work culture. Right. Another definition of toxic work culture is in the same vein is because everyone's working for this individual, he burns out everyone around them. So it's all about them. And so that burns out people it turns them off, they become disengaged, and they, you know, don't, don't they, they can't bring their best to work every day. I probably have mirrored some of the roles that you've done across pharma industry. And one of the things I re realize is that the amount of work which is in uh, the system, right? So, so the amount of work being done is not directly proportional to the impact of that work. Um, so, how can a leader be much more effective in making sure that everybody is focused on the true north, that they're doing the things that truly have an impact and not busy work? 
because you were talking about the fact that you know people may not have work life balance so they are they're coming in and they feel like they're stretched to the max right and right now with covid you know that people are getting on tcs especially in global jobs very early in the morning very late at nights um so how do you how do you manage that as a leader while being very empowering at the same time so then the first thing is what are we what are we doing so what is the work about um i i found that when the work relates to creating value for the customer that people will do the work cuz mm-hmm. they they they're in it for that particular purpose when the work involves trying to make somebody look good or it's just really just like reporting or busy work which is like you know I'm trying to you know somebody above me wants visibility to this thing and the easiest way to give them visibility is to you know spend hours building powerpoints or sending them excel files or doing you know these analysis and I'm not saying that's wrong I'm thinking that they have to be involved um but if the entire job is just trying to give someone visibility into what you're doing then you're not doing anything all you're doing is giving them visibility into what you're not doing <laughs> versus what you're actually doing so for me like for example when i became general manager in indonesia i made a i made a a concerted effort to be in the field twice a month and why was that well, why why i spent so much time in the field and my and my team had never experienced a general manager who was in the field that much they were just like we've never even seen a gm before be out in the field and go across the many islands of indonesia the way i did and i said listen guys first of all i work for you you may not believe it or not but i'm here to support you so whatever are your concern whatever preventing you from convincing or helping doctors make the right choices around products for their patients that's the most important thing that we're working on as a company so not some you know not my presentation to my boss coming up in 2 weeks not you know whatever's going on globally in the organization what's most important is when you're in front of that customer do you have everything you need and are you empowered and are you confident to make the to make your best presentation possible mm-hmm. and so i dedicated myself and my organization to that task so that the work that we did was was let's say 75% of the time was related to that right you know there's always going to be always going to be a busy work and then we would talk about the rest of the work and say all right what's value adding so what is customer focused work and what is not so we always have that stop start continue conversation so i think that as a leader not just once a year not just during business planning you should do it probably quarterly mm-hmm. what are we what should we stop doing this not adding value what should we start doing because we need to really ramp up something and what can we continue doing that's actually working and always having that what's working well what's not conversation related to the mission of adding value to the end consumer everybody can get along i think everybody can get on with that everybody can 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 uh jive with that but when they know that the work is really just to make you look good and that's their whole existence is making you look good um that's soul sucking that's not interesting yeah it's not i i agree with you you know yeah. i didn't go to college for 4 years and pay rack up 60,000 of debt to make some person i didn't never met uh, you know get them promoted <laughs> you know that's that <laughs> that that that's kind of you know but we live in a society where this is acceptable like this is the world we live in right and it's really unfortunate yeah no i think one of the things i did when i was in taipei as a general manager was really um powerpoint is is sort of not my most favorite mode of communication Right. So we had whiteboards everywhere and we yep. would just draw on the whiteboards take pictures and send to one another <laughs> you know because all you needed to do was the person who was going to do the work 
to really own it, right? And you know why they were doing it and what value it added was going to bring. And then the senior leadership team was there to support uh, that whole effort, right? And, and to make sure that there were no barriers in the way. So, so certainly from my perspective, what you're saying is absolutely right. Take the busy work out. And I think this is part of continuous improvement as well, that you, know, you continue to look at your processes, you continue to look at what your people are doing and take work out that is not impactful so that they can actually focus on things that are important to the customer. They're customer focused and you can be employee focused along with customer focus, right? As a senior leader. Another example is I, re I remember when we, when we rolled out the, all the multi-tenal and digital ways of working and, and um, I found out just in a sidebar conversation that it was that basically marketers were spending four hours at night trying to just approve promotional materials through Zinc which is our system we utilize to approve materials because the Wi-Fi was too slow um, at their homes and they were spending all night long just trying to approve materials. I was like, so this is why my, and, they, and that was the reason they gave why they weren't going to the field. So I said, oh, we have to, we have to nip that in the bud real quick. So I, I remember standing in front of my leadership team and we were breaking down the process, like step-by-step, step, let's break down this process and find out what we can take out, what we can improve on, well, we can, you know, use technology to, to enable, um, and we got it. We got it down from like a four-day approval process to like a three-hour approval process. Absolutely. And that's the job of a senior leader. Is that's when you're really making a difference. You're doing the painful stuff to take work out of the system, change the way things are being done, and enhancing lives. So now everybody got like three and a half days of their life back. They can do other more productive value-added work. So it's, 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 that's, that's the point. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Omar, what is a servant leader? So a servant leader is the opposite of a toxic leader in that a servant leader does not boss. A servant leader uh, understands, analyzes, connects, uh, and supports. Um, that's how they achieve performance. So a boss achieve performance by directing. Listen, this is what I expect. This is how I expect it. This is the standard. A servant leader achieves performance by establishing a mission bigger than themselves and then working hand in glove with every individual whose job it is to achieve that mission, to remove obstacles, to potentialize the strengths of the organization, to build high performance teams, and to drive that drive, keep everyone aligned on the goal toward the mission. And the feeling of it is very different. So when you work for a servant leader, you never feel talked at. You feel like you're working alongside this individual and uh, no matter what their job title is, you don't feel like they're bossing. You never feel bossed, right. I guess is the point. You feel that you can talk to them, you feel that you trust them, you feel loyal to them, you feel supported by them, you feel developed by them. And you have this honest, like interpersonal relationship with this individual who you see as someone who is as or more invested in your success than even you are. Right. And I think that's the feeling of a servant leader, whereas the feeling of a boss is, you know, like someone hitting you over the head with a hammer all day. So basically the feeling is of uplifting versus hammering. And I think you, you talk about consistency, humility, and trustworthiness um, as well about the three qualities. Why these three qualities, Omar? So I think that, I mean, 
so what people need is they need, I mean, in general, in life, we need, we need consistency. And a lot of times in corporate America, it's hard to find consistency mm. because depending on how performance are going, you know, every Monday it could be running a right strategy change, run to the left and then <laughs> move up that, you know, we've all experienced like this whole lack of consistency, right? You, you have lack of consistency when you haven't done the work to establish a higher uh, 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 an overarching vision and mission for the organization. If you're just responding to numbers, then you're not going to be consistent because the numbers are never going to be consistent. Numbers are always going to go up and down and fluctuate uh, due to whatever's happening in the environment, things that are not within your control. So the numbers cannot be the thing that everyone's responding to. It has to be bigger than numbers. It has to be, you know, patient out. If you're talking about pharmaceuticals or healthcare, it has to be patient outcomes or, you know, education level for physicians or something of a higher order that you can all work toward, you can be you can consistently provide effort towards. So the, the 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 manager, you know, consistently reminding everyone what their job is. You know, that's the consistency I'm talking about. Humility is just um, the willingness for a leader to say, first of all, I don't know it all. I'm not the best at everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I'm curious about many many different things. Um, but I'm not always right. And I think that those, when you approach business or approach people that way, uh, as a human, I think that it also gives people permission to be human, Mm -hmm. um, and bring their best selves to work every day because they understand they're not going to be denigrated or, uh, judged for not knowing, you know, we, how do you, how can you know everything, Mm. you know? Um, so I think that the first, it's a, it's more of a role modeling and exampling for people that, it's okay not to know it all. It's okay not to have all the answers. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to make, to, to make bad decisions. It's okay to fail. All these things are okay because they're human. Yeah. What's not okay is not to try and not to continue the journey for, uh, for excellence. And so I think that that's what the humble leader does. The humility, you know, you bring in that, that you know, it's okay to be human mm-hmm. element yeah. to the organization. Mm-hmm. And then trustworthiness is, you know, nobody wants to work for someone that they're worried about being backstabbed by. No one wants to work in an environment where, where you know, I'm going to do all this work and then you're going to take credit for what I've done. You know, yeah. um, it, it just doesn't, it, it poisons the well when you're not trustworthy as a leader. When I can't depend on you um, as a leader, then I lose my polar north because I'm looking at you like you're the person who's supposed to be directing, showing me the way. And if you're, you know, not trustworthy, if you're immoral, or if you if you have toxic qualities, then you know it's going to be very hard for us to have a, a connection and for me to do my best work for you. So it's really about productivity. Like, you know, if you think about the best leader you've ever worked for, if it was somebody who was trustworthy, you probably were more productive mm-hmm. because they trusted. They because trustworthiness is like not about them being trustworthy. It's also about them giving you trust. They trust you. That's right. How many times in your career have you been trusted, like, to do a job where they're like, listen, I believe in you. I know you'll figure it out. If you need me, I'm here. How often do you hear that in a, in, in, in a company um, where you know you're empowered, you know you have a parachute, you know you have a safety net, uh, and you know you have someone you can go to for support if you need it, and you know that failure is not the worst thing? One of the things I advocate for in my, my book, Leaderboard, The DNA of High Performance Teams, is this process called interviewing, not interviewing, interviewing, I-N-N-E-R. Mm-hmm. 
which is a process that I invented when I began onboarding employees and trying to build this trust and connection right from the beginning. It's something you can actually do with your senior manager, you know, or your manager when you first come on board to try to figure out where these guardrails are, um, to figure out the boundaries and how you're going to work together and have a very open and frank conversation about communication styles, strengths, experience, expectations. Having that conversation within the first 30 days of, 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 of working with a new person is kind of fundamental. It kind of sets the tone. And your manager likely is not going to have that conversation with you. So you kind of need to bring it up right. um, to them. And that kind of at least creates a, uh, a sandbox for you, you all to work within. And I'm sure they're going to treat you differently. They'll treat people who haven't had that conversation with them. Um, you started to talk a little bit about the high performance teams and, and the leaderboard. Um, yeah. Any other key takeaways from that book? Um, it's an excellent book, and I would highly recommend this one as well as the Servant Leaders Manifesto. But any other takeaways um, that people could learn from? So I wrote Leaderboard with a specific purpose, which was, you know, I, in my own career, you know, I've perceived that, you know, we are in, we're in the age of teams. We're in the age of collaboration, right? But one of the things that you're not taught in business school, you're not taught in management as you're coming up is how to be a successful team leader. Mm -hmm. So how do you bring a group of people together around the table, get the most out of everyone there and really drive performance? So I began trying to figure out theories and processes to, to kind of make that process happen faster. Right. And so I ended up going back to 1965 and Bruce Tuckman, who wrote the landmark article of, of uh, development of, of, of development sequence of groups where he talks about, we've all heard this, the forming, storming, norming, mm -hmm. and performing. Right. And what I've given you in leaderboard is literally hacks. So uh, different hacks you can use as a manager to navigate your team through these stages fast, get better before. Scientifically, you're going to go through all four. Mm -hmm. Cannot, uh, and, and, and you cannot really skip stages. You're right. going to go, no one likes storming, but you're going to go through storming. The reason why you're going to go through storming is because once you've aligned on what you're trying to achieve, people are going to, people are always going to have different opinions about how to do it. And they're always going to question the leader because they haven't, you haven't gained that authority or that trust yet with all the individuals. So until you gain that trust and until you align on the how people, you're going to storm. You're going to have the meeting after the meeting syndrome. People are going to question your authority. You're going to have the, it's going to happen. It happens to every right. manager who's ever tried to do anything. Yeah. Question is, can you get through it faster? Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, leaderboard uh, gives very spe specific instructions of some techniques, one of them being a servant leader. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, that will help you to um, speed through these processes, get to performing faster than ever before and stay there mm -hmm. um, so that you can really spend most of your time doing what's most enjoyable about work, which is, getting jobs done, excelling, setting best practices, transporting ideas, and, and, and enjoying what the work is. So I think that that's, that was the intent behind, behind the book and, and what people are getting out of it today. Great. Um, Omar, what legacy do you want to leave? What do you want to be remembered for? So for me, I think that what I would love to be remembered for is somebody who stood up to the status quo of, of leadership. Mm. Um, and made a made a shift in the status quo. So I think that someone who inspired people to pursue the servant leadership path, even though it's not the easy path. Mm. If you want people doing high quality work the first time, 
you should invest in servant leadership principles. So for me, my legacy really is to hopefully inspire more people to take control of their own lives, basically understand their own strengths and unique abilities and say, listen, I'm good at this. I'm going to build this legacy for myself. Um, and if you are leading others to really lead with love, um, uh, lead with service and, and be someone who is really inspiring people to be the best version of themselves versus being in this rat race where, you know, wealth in society is, you know, if you believe in Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs, what we call wealthy in, Amer in, the, in, in global society is more food, more clothing, more shelter, you know, more perceived safety, not more connection, not more esteem, not more self-actualization. That's not wealth. And that's wrong. I mean, you know, that, that's, that's patently, you know, we're, we're, we're settling for the basis level things when the real good stuff is at the higher levels of the, of the pyramid. So I think that that's really what I want to, um, I want to, my legacy to be. From what you're saying, what resonates with me is that working on your inner self, working on sort of that compassion, the kindness, but not losing your business edge along with that uh, is yeah. the key to it. But at the fundamental, at the center of it, it's all about people. Yeah. That's, that's what you're talking about. It's, it's all about people. If you're going to work with people, you know, you can whip them or you can inspire them. I just have seen that people do greater things when they're inspired than when they're whipped. Right. Um, they go the extra mile. And so I think that that's what, it, I mean, very simply, that's what it, <laughs> what it, what it really comes down to. Um, and it, I love what you said just now said, because I think that it really is all about the inner game. You know, it's all about, um, you know, the, 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 I have a friend who's, uh, who's a, who's a seventh degree black belt. And I was mm -hmm. asking him, really, what's the difference between a first degree black belt and a seventh degree black belt? And he's like, well, Omar, the difference is, you know, when you're a first degree black belt, you have the technique, but you're still using a lot, you're exerting a lot of energy to do the damage you want to do to your opponent. Mm -hmm. When you become a seventh degree, as you become different levels of black belt, you're, you're beginning to get the same result with less energy. So, whereas when I was a first degree black belt to get you to move back from me, I had to push you like this. When I'm a seven degree black belt, I can push you like this and get the exact same result. You're going to fall back the same distance. My technique and my strength are such that I've mastered the ability to, I've mastered myself, I've mastered my craft, and I've mastered the ability to, to influence what I want to influence. And I think that, you know, this servant leadership is about mastery. It's about you know, um, actually I exert a lot less energy than bosses exert to get the same result, you know, and I have a lot more fun doing it. So I think it's really, you know, that's where the mindset is around servant leadership is, is it's, you know, there's multiple ways to accomplish the same goal, but you know, if you can do it with exerting less energy, that means you'll have more energy for the big stuff. Um, how does one become a servant leader, if not already there. And I, I really do believe that, I, I fundamentally believe that, yes, some leaders are born, but most of the leaders are made. And you have to continue to work on yourself as a leader. And that's why we need coaches, right? So. Yeah. Well, so I think, I think coaching is, is really important. Mm -hmm. That's why I am a coach. Because I, I know that it's not just enough to talk about it and write about it, but I have to actually, you know, meet someone where they are and take them on the journey. And, and, and so, you know, uh, coaching is a fundamental way to do that. I think your own curiosity, I remember being 
an associate product manager, my, my manager, he had a library of leadership books behind his desk. And I would just go and check them out. I would go read, you know, John C. Maxwell, Discover the Leader Within You. And, you know, and we would discuss these books. And I was the only, I mean, we had seven product managers. I was the only one reading these books. Mm. So I was the only one curious about, first of all, humble enough to say, I don't know what this stuff is about. I want to learn about it. Right. And also curious enough to put the time in to, to, to learn more about it. So I was, you know, I think that the first thing is you don't know it all. Mm. And there's a lot of resources out there um, that can help you accelerate your journey. In the back of the Certain Leaders Manifesto, I give you literally an appendix of all the books that I read to become the servant leader that I am. And you'll read this, it's over 48 references. Right. So I didn't, I wasn't born spouting all this, you know, uh, all this stuff. I mean, I, I validated it, I've checked it, I have tried it in the real world, um, and I'm still reading and learning every day. Mm -hmm. um, you never, you never stop. You never, you never get to the end of that, of that journey. So I think that, you know, it's the honest assessment and acknowledgement that there's more to be learned um, and that there's more ways to learn than just by uh, experiential learning on the job. I think you need to find coaches, find mentors, uh, uh, read books, watch, listen to podcasts, listen to audio books, whatever it is to get, to keep self-development a priority in your life, I think is, is fundamental. Um, one of the things I talk about in the, in the, one of the first chapters of, of the Certain Leader Manifesto is about personal effectiveness. So if you are not improving yourself as a leader, then your lid or your ability to influence is going to be, is going to be much lower. So you have, you have an obligation to be the most curious, to be the most uh, humble in the organization, the higher up you go, you don't become less, you become more because mm. the questions become bigger and they become, you know, hairier, they become more challenging, you know, how do I set up a company that has zero emissions around the world? That's a CEO level question. That's not something a product manager is going to solve, right? So you, you have to build the capacity to tackle the big questions um, the higher up you go. And you build that by just having that mindset of, I am not going to be satisfied with the status quo of knowledge. And I'm always going to be learning and developing myself because you never know what the next challenge around the corner is going to be. So what's your one advice for boards as well as CEOs of companies um, that are looking to get more high performance behaviors within their organizations? So, so one of the things I'm doing with my business uh, is to redefine some of the metrics that are important for organizations. Mm -hmm. and, and so you can look at the P&L and you can look at the traditional metrics and ratios and things that everybody focuses on. But I began looking at that a bit differently. Mm -hmm. And I've begun looking at and thinking about, you know, for example, um, you know, so customer, customer experience and customer experience has been a buzzword for the last few years. There's like three or four different main measures of customer experience. You have uh, the stickiness quotient, now you have customers, how long they stay with you for a year. And you have, you have the, the cost of customer acquisition, you have these different um, and long-term customer value, right? So, right? so everyone has a kind of a line behind these kind of metrics of customer uh, experience, but in order for you to deliver a customer experience, you have to deliver an employee experience. That's right. An employee experience is not just how fancy your office is, what kind of lunch you catered lunch you have in, do you have nap pods or can I bring my dog to work? Those are not really superficial. The real employee experience is how much are you investing in attracting and recruiting the top talent in the organization? Mm -hmm. 
So I would question of the HR spend, how much of that is actually going towards a tr constant attraction and recruiting, right? Whether you have a hiring freeze, don't have a hiring freeze, how much you're investing in that? Secondarily, how much you're investing in effective onboarding for employees? How many people, you ask, if you ask 20 people how good their onboarding was at their company, most people check out right from the beginning because they don't get an onboarding. They, they get, you know, walked around the office, put into a cubicle and said, all right, your boss didn't come give you some work, you're going to figure it out. Yeah. So I think that onboarding is the next key element of, of, of that experience. And the third element of that experience is, uh, is managerial effectiveness. So what is the consistent investment in your manager ranks at all levels? You know, everyone is a manager. So I mean, C-suite all the way down. Anyone who has more than two or three direct reports should be, should be have a constant investment in them from a managerial effectiveness standpoint. And if you're thinking about your HR spend, if 75% of it is not in these three areas, then actually you're not driving an employee experience that's gonna ultimately drive a better customer experience. So, uh, this was an incredible conversation. I feel like there is, uh, this, this should not come to an end. <laughs> we should continue <laughs> to uh, explore different uh, stories from your past and of course, uh, you know, also delve a little bit more into your books. But um, I think the best way to get to know your books is to read them. Uh, yes. there, there is some really uh, nice nuggets and pearls in there. Uh, for all those that are listening and, and uh, would highly recommend both the books. Um, I guess you have a new book coming. I know you're working on something. When yes, can yes. we expect to see it? Um, not to put any pressure on you, Omar. Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, I have uh, the sequel to Leaderboard called Halo, the mission of high performance teams is in development. Mm -hmm. I hope to have it out by spring of 2021. So um, that that's the goal for that next, that next book. Um, and then we'll just keep putting more poor titles out there and 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 because writing is my passion and and uh trying to connect with and coach um, um those who need coaching so great wonderful talking to you thanks for coming on the vlog and thanks, uh, thanks for great. for all your insights it's a wonderful initiative and and uh thank you very much for for uh, the opportunity to, to chat with you and catch up and uh yeah i hope we can do it again sometime thank you Thank you for listening to The Journey of Life. Like, share, and subscribe.